I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director at the Long Now Foundation. Welcome to our first Chabot Center uh, talk here in the planetarium. Thank you guys for coming all the way up here. As some of you know that, uh, that come to the Long Now talks, that before we do the talks, we often do something called a long short, which is a short film that exemplifies long-term thinking. And we were trying to figure out which one we should uh, show here tonight. And then it occurred to me that we were in a planetarium. And for the very first time, I could request a planetarium to do whatever I wanted. <laughs> and so one of, the, one of the things the clock of the Long Now tracks, that actually the slowest cycle that it tracks, um, if you can bring down the lights a little bit, uh, actually you can bring them all the way down, you don't need to see me here. Um, in the center there is, uh, is the star field, and all those pointers are pointing to the celestial pole, Polaris, um, which is currently at Polaris. But the celestial pole is not always pointing to Polaris. We, the last few thousand years we happen to be in a very lucky position for navigation uh, where we had a nice bright star there. Um, but that dome of stars underneath those pointers also uh, turns once every 25,771.5 years in what's called the precessional cycle, the, the axial precession of the Earth. And so uh, we actually have a demo of that from outside the planet. Ooh, we should kill our projector, actually. Is that going to be possible? Excellent. Okay, so this is the processional cycle happening. You can see the North Pole there, nicely indicated by the arrow. Um, this is the one processional cycle, 20, roughly 26,000 years, happening in 30 seconds. So it's that 23-degree it's that tilt of the Earth doing a little wobble. But then the thing that I've always wanted to see is what that looks like from one place on the planet. Now, the computer was having some trouble with this earlier. We'll see if it, if it actually pulls it off. I think it might have a, a decamillennium bug in it. <laughs> we'll see. OK, so we're going to swing around first to bring Polaris into view. No one vomit. <laughs> OK, so we're looking right now at Celestial North, that red dot, which is uh, Polaris. And that's, if you're looking at it, that's the tail of Ursa Minor, generally. And now we're doing a one-minute full processional cycle. This would be basically you know, your shot at midnight once a night for 26,000 years condensed to one minute. Uh, Vega's coming around when the tail of Ursa Minor is up by that 80, roughly, or about, right there, right there's there. Vega right there, swinging by the bright star. Vega. So Vega will be our north star in about 13,000 years, if anyone's <laughs> paying attention.
Lovely. Thank you guys so much. And uh, I'll hand you off to uh, Alex Whistler, the director here at Chabot, to tell you about our evening's activities. Thanks a lot, Alexander. Isn't that terrific? Um, I think that, again, I'm Alex Whistler. I'm the executive director here at Chabot. I want to welcome everyone from Long Now and our friends and family from Chabot. Um, that little moment exemplified, I was watching that, and I was just thinking, this is exactly why I just love the Long Now Foundation. I had a chance to meet these folks uh, several years ago in a previous life when I was the executive director at Fort Mason, and we saw to it that they uh, have their new home at Fort Mason Center. Uh, yeah. And uh, now they have a new home at Chabot as our partners here, and uh, we hope might be a continuing uh, partnership. Um, just a quick commercial on Chabot. I know uh, for some folks it's your first time here. Uh, we're a space and science center. Uh, we see about 200,000 folks a year. We're also the largest publicly accessible observatory in the country. And uh, with, uh, with the skies uh, conspiring in our favor later tonight, uh, the telescopes will be open for your pleasure. Wow, you see a closet on here. I love these people. Come back. I'd like to introduce my friend Stuart Brand, who will uh, introduce the program tonight. Stuart. Twenty-six thousand years is. Um, we like we started with ten thousand years, and we're getting up to the twenty-six thousand years. We use the five digits for years, as you know, to get by the decamillennium bug, and by the eight thousand years. So you know, this is zero, twenty ten. Uh, but I realize that not too far out from that, then there's going to be the whatever you call the bug when you need six digits. If we stay with the same year numeration. And then you can start wondering about what are the chances that we'll keep the same year numeration and how long we'll keep it, you know, out of this century, another millennium. How many here have read a book called Star Maker? Of course, Martin Rees has. Um, I recommend it. It has this context. It is basically a guy out in a field looking up at the night sky, and then he, he uh, ascends into it and uh, joins the life of the stars. It is one of the great visionary texts. And what Martin Rees brings is, in a sense, the star maker perspective. And what else he brings is our context and that context overlapping, which in a way is what the Long Now Foundation is about. We sort of use 10,000 years as an indicator of a time taking the long term very seriously, the long time past and the long time future. Martin Rees lives there. Please welcome our speaker. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great uh, pleasure and privilege to be here. Um, my lecture is about the future, but I'm going to start in an old-fashioned way with a text the famous closing words of The Origin of Species. Whilst this planet has been cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, forms most wonderful have been and are being evolved. Astronomers probe back before Darwin's simple beginning, which after all is quite a complicated situation in our young planet. Astronomers trace how, starting from some mysterious 
beginning nearly 14 billion years ago, atoms, galaxies, stars, and planets emerged. But in deference especially to Stuart Brand, I'd like to describe astronomy as the grandest environmental science. And it really is, because the night sky is the one feature of our environment which has been shared by all cultures throughout all ages where humans have existed, though each culture has interpreted it in distinctive ways. And as I'll describe in this lecture, our origins lie in the stars, and our remote descendants may roam among them. My topic today, life in the cosmos, fascinates astronomers, but it would have fascinated Darwin as well. I'm going to ask what's the future of life and what's the chance we discover it elsewhere. I can't claim to be much of a forecaster or visionary myself, and I always have to say I'm not an astrologer, I don't give horoscopes. But my next picture shows someone who was a visionary, and many of you will recognize him, that's Arthur C. Clarke. He said that his greatest wish was to see the discovery of alien life. Sadly, he didn't live to see that. He died in 2007, age 90. But he did live long enough, of course, to see human life venture beyond the Earth. To give a bit of history, he wasn't the first person to think about space travel. Among his precursors was the great Newton. I give him a plug because he's the most distinguished alumnus of my college in Cambridge. I have to say, though, he was an unattractive character compared to Darwin. Solitary and obsessive when young, vain and vindictive in his old age. So not a nice man. But he was, of course, the first to understand how, in Darwin's phrase, planets go cycling on in their orbits. And he must have thought about space travel. Indeed, this picture from the English edition of his Principia is still the neatest way to explain to students the nature of orbital flight. He calculated that for the cannonball to achieve an orbital trajectory, for it to curve in its trajectory no sharper than the Earth curves away under it, its speed must be 18,000 miles an hour, far beyond what was then achievable, of course. And the first object to reach that orbital speed was, of course, Sputnik 1. Only 12 years separated Sputnik and the first moon landing. And the moon landing was only 66 years after the Wright brothers' first flight. And many of us who recall that expected a lunar base, even an expedition to Mars, within 30 years. But 2001 didn't resemble Arthur C. Clarke's vision any more than 1984, fortunately, resembled Orwell's. The political impetus for manned spaceflight was lost, and only the middle-aged can now remember seeing live the murky TV pictures of Neil Armstrong's One Small Step. In fact, my students in England know that the Americans landed on the moon, just as they know that the Egyptians built the pyramids. Both enterprises seem driven by equally arcane national goals. 
But it was a heroic episode, and I cherish this picture assigned for me by seven of the Apollo astronauts. Since Apollo, hundreds of astronauts have circled the Earth in low orbit, activities that really seem neither practical nor inspiring. Meanwhile, of course, unmanned probes to other planets have beamed back pictures of many varied and distinctive worlds. I run through a picture of Mars. You've all seen pictures like this, showing the extraordinary terrain on Mars. Here's a big crater there. And the next picture is going to show the place where those arrows are. Uh, this is uh, a close-up of Mars. And this is the Phoenix uh, spacecraft, which landed there about two years ago and is going to dig up a sample, though not, of course, yet return it to Earth. Going further afield, uh, the uh, spacecraft have been to Jupiter. Here are its four big moons. Europa is especially interesting. Uh, there's this icy surface uh, beneath which there is probably an ocean. And there's a close-up of the extraordinary surface. One of the most remarkable feats of space robotics was connected with Saturn's giant moon Titan. The Cassini mission went to Saturn... And then when it got there, a small uh, European probe called Huygens broke loose and was aimed to land on Titan, the giant moon of Saturn. It was supposed to do this. This is an artist's impression of what it was supposed to do, open a parachute and land on the surface. And indeed, that is what it did. On the left, are pictures taken on the way down. On the right, where it landed. Now, this may look like rivers and lakes, etc., but this is not a hospitable environment. Uh, these rivers are rivers of liquid methane. The temperature here is minus 170 degrees centigrade. Well, I hope that during this century, the entire solar system, all the planets and the main moons, will be explored and mapped by flotillas of tiny robotic craft, far more sophisticated than the Huygens probe. I think we can predict that. But... Will people follow them? The practical case for sending people into space gets, in my view, ever weaker with each advance in robotics and miniaturization. Indeed, as a scientist or practical man, I see no real case for sending people into space at all. But as a human being, I'm nonetheless in favor of man missions. And I hope some people now living will walk on Mars and that it will be a long-range adventure for at least a few humans. But, of course, this goal is receding. NASA's firm plans now don't even include a return to the surface of the moon. And I think one problem, actually, is that NASA is constrained by public and political opinion to be too risk-averse and therefore expensive. The shuttle failed twice in 120 launches, but each of those failures was presented as a national trauma causing extra delay and expense. So actually I don't think that future expeditions to the moon and beyond will be politically and economically feasible unless they are, as it were, cut-price ventures, perhaps even privately funded, spearheaded by individuals prepared to accept high risks, perhaps even one-way tickets. And the involvement of people like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and others in the high-tech community 
in launcher development is surely a positive step. And it's surely not unrealistic to envisage multi-billion dollar projects with private sponsorship. Even individuals could do it. And another calibration is that Formula One car racing involves leading teams, Ferrari and McLaren, which each have sponsorship budgets of three or four hundred million dollars annually. So in that perspective, a ten billion dollar privately funded or sponsored project doesn't seem crazy, although that of course is very cheap compared to what NASA would uh, presently be doing. And of course it's very important to realize that space travel is dangerous. We mustn't kid ourselves, it's levelly routine. And that's the worry I have with things like uh, Richard Branson's scheme, presenting his space tourism, because there again, the first disaster uh, will be a real trauma. It's got to be approached in the same spirit that drives test pilots, mountaineers, round-the-world sailors, and the like. And remember that nowhere in our solar system offers an environment even as clement as the Antarctic or the top of Everest. Space doesn't offer an escape from the world's problems, as some people claim. But there could, I suppose, in future centuries, be self-sufficient groups of pioneers living away from the Earth. They would surely use all the resources of genetic technology to modify themselves to adapt to alien environments. And the post-human era would then have begun. And thereafter, evolution would happen on a technological timescale far, far shorter than the timescale of Darwinian evolution. And, of course, these post-humans could spread still further, and machines of human intelligence could spread further still. Indeed, whether the future lies with organic post-humans or with robots is a matter for real debate. In space exploration, there are, of course, issues of environmental ethics. Would it be appropriate to exploit Mars, as happened when the pioneers advanced westwards across the United States? Is it okay to send seeds for plants genetically modified to grow in alien environments like Mars? Should terraforming be thought about seriously? Or should the red planet be preserved as a natural wilderness, like we think the Antarctic should be? This is an important debate. And the answer I think, will depend on what the pristine state of Mars actually is. If there were any life already on Mars, especially if it had different DNA, testifying to a quite separate origin from any life on Earth, then there would be widely voiced insistence that it should be preserved as unpolluted as possible. Whereas if there's nothing there, it would seem to me that it would matter less if we exploited it, and ditto for the moon, it would matter less if we exploited it. Well, uh, so much for the planets. Uh, Let's now widen our horizons to the stars, widen our gaze beyond our solar system, far beyond the reach of any probe that we can now conceive. We can't foresee going to the stars, but could there be life already among the stars? We've certainly learnt enough about stars to understand them. And... We understand how they evolve, but we see places where they're born and where they die. Here in the famous Eagle Nebula, about 7,000 light years away, there's hundreds of solar masses of dusty gas condensing into new stars and new solar systems. 
just as our own solar system once did. And we see stars dying. Some die elegantly like this, as our sun will in about six billion years. Some die in a less symmetric way. This is another star like the sun dying. And other stars, stars which are much heavier than the sun to start with, die more explosively. This, as I'm sure many people know, is the famous object of Crab Nebula, which is the expanding debris from an explosion uh, witnessed and recorded by Chinese astronomers in the year 1054 AD. The precursor of this was a star about ten times as heavy as the sun. Why do these far away, long ago phenomena affect us? They're very crucial to our very existence. That's because during the lifetime of the star that gave rise to the Crab Nebula, it was fueled by fusion of hydrogen to helium, helium into carbon, oxygen, and the rest of the periodic table. And then, when it exploded, this processed material was flung back into space. And eventually, in about 10,000 years, it would all have merged into interstellar gas. And our galaxy is a kind of ecosystem where gas is processed and recycled through successive generations of stars. If this lecture was two hours long, I would explain all this diagram in detail. I won't do that, but this just indicates the various routes whereby pristine gas uh, eventually condenses into stars, and the low-mass stars have long lifetimes. They tie up the gas for a long time, but the high-mass stars evolve quite quickly and then explode and throw the stuff out again so that new generations of stars can form. And indeed, all the carbon, oxygen, and iron on Earth and in our bodies is ash from long-dead stars, stars that died before our solar system formed. Indeed, each of our bodies contains atoms that came from thousands of different stars all over the Milky Way. We are the nuclear waste, as it were, from the fusion power that makes stars shine. And if you look at it that way, then the cosmos is part of our environment in a very intimate sense. We wouldn't be here were it not for these stars which lived and died far away and long ago. Stars in themselves are fascinating as part of our environment for just that reason. But we've now learned something that makes the night sky even more interesting than it was to our forebears. Many stars, perhaps even most, are orbited by retinues of planets, just like the sun is. Most of the planets that we know about aren't directly detected, but they're inferred. And the prime technique is illustrated in this picture here. If a star is orbited by a planet, then what actually happens is the star and the planet both orbit their centre of mass, what's called the barycentre. If the planet's going round in a large circular orbit, then the star goes round in a much smaller circular orbit, the radius being inversely proportional to the mass. And the star being much more massive moves more slowly. But the small amplitude periodic changes in the Doppler effect can be detected by amazingly precise spectroscopy of the star. You can detect an orbital motion of the star 
at any speed down to walking pace. That's about 1 in 10 to the 8th of the speed of light. Very precise spectroscopy indeed. And by this technique, by looking for the periodic wobbles in stars induced by the pull of planets orbiting them, several hundred planets have been found. And, of course, Jeff Marcy, just down the road in, Harvard, in uh, Berkeley, is one of the leaders in this search. And this is uh, a slightly old slide. This uh, just shows a list of stars uh, which are known to have at least two planets uh, by this technique. And indeed, there's one star that's been found to have at least five planets by this technique. Now, the evidence about planets around other stars pertains mainly so far to giant planets, planets roughly the size of Jupiter or Saturn, the giants of our solar system. Detecting an Earth-like planet is much harder because that would induce motions of only a few centimetres per second in its parent star, too small to be detected by this technique of looking for the Doppler effect. But we'd be especially interested in possible twins of our Earth, planets the same size as ours, orbiting other sun-like stars on orbits with temperatures such that water neither freezes um, all the time uh, nor boils. And detecting these Earth-like planets, hundreds of times less matter than Jupiter, is a real challenge. As I said, it can't be done yet by the same technique as the big ones are. But there is another technique uh, which can detect less massive planets. We can, as we look for their shadow. And that's being done by the NASA uh, Kepler mission. Uh, if a planet moved across in front of a star, and we were looking at the, the star, then the star would get slightly fainter because the planet in front of it blocks out a bit of its light. And so if you're looking at the star, uh, then its brightness would behave as in this diagram here if a planet uh, was in orbit in the plane of our line of sight, so it moved across it. And so this technique allows you to detect planets by looking for regular periodic dips in the uh, light curve of a star. Now, the Kepler spacecraft, which was launched back in March last year, is already finding dozens of planets not much bigger than the Earth by this technique. What Kepler does is it looks at a patch of sky about seven degrees across and measures the brightness of up to 100,000 stars in that field to a precision of about one part in 100,000 and does that every half hour. And accumulating that data, it looks for cases where you see this slight dimming by a few parts in 10,000 when an Earth-like planet moves across. And the hope is that in a year or two, the Kepler team will announce a number of planets found by this technique. Now, of course, for every one they find on an Earth-like orbit around an a sun-like star, uh, you can expect at least 50 times more in simple geometry because clearly you've got to be fairly accurately in the plane of the orbit in order to see this effect at all. So in a couple of years' time, we will have fairly uh, clear evidence on how many Earth-like planets there are 
around a typical field of stars. But we'd really, of course, like to see these planets directly, not just their shadows, as it were. And that's hard. To realize how hard, let's suppose that an alien astronomer with a powerful telescope and, say, 30 light years away, the distance of a nearby star, was looking at our solar system. Well, the sun from that distance would look an ordinary star. And our planet, the Earth, would seem, in Carl Sagan's nice phrase, a pale blue dot, very close to its star, our sun, which would outshine it by many billions. So you're looking for a far fly next to a searchlight, as it were. And that's a big challenge. But if you could detect this pale blue dot, then you could learn quite a bit about it by watching it. Because a shade of blue seen by the aliens, if they looked at the Earth, would be slightly different depending on whether the Pacific Ocean or the landmass of Asia was facing them. So by watching this dot, the aliens could infer that there were continents, the length of a day, something of the seasons, and the climate. They might even be able to infer something about the atmosphere and that it had oxygen and ozone in it. Well, within 20 years, we will be making inferences like that about Earth-like planets around the nearest stars. And that will involve either uh, large arrays in space. This is a proposed European project called uh, uh, Darwin. It's a miracle project called the uh, Terrestrial Planet Finder, which is rather similar. Or maybe even by giant telescopes on the ground. This is a, a design for a European giant telescope. You see the, the truck to give the scale. Something like this would be able to uh, resolve uh, the image of a uh, pale blue dot uh, near to a much brighter star. Well, this is what we can expect 20 years from now to detect planets like the Earth. But will there be life on them? We still know very little about this question. I would say we know far too little to say whether alien life is likely or unlikely. That's basically because we don't know how life began on Earth. We know from Darwin how it evolved once it got started. We, don't, we didn't know uh, whether uh, life on Earth arose by some natural process or whether it was a rare fluke like shuffling a deck of cards into perfect order. We just don't know. We would, of course, like to find out if there is any life in our solar system before looking further, and here are possible places to look. No one expects any very advanced life, uh, but uh, uh, it would be very important to see if there is any vestiges of life here. And if there is, as I said earlier in the ca case of Mars, we'd like to be sure whether this life has an independent origin or whether the life, say, from Mars had gone to the Earth or vice versa. And that could be done by seeing if it has similar DNA. But clearly, if there's any life in any of these locations, it's not going to be very exciting or very advanced life. And so we do have to look further afield to planets around other stars. It makes sense, I suppose, to focus on other planets which are like the Earth, because we know that uh, life did start at least once in that sort of environment, and so it's sensible to look at Earth-like planets orbiting long-lived solar-type stars. 
But I think we shouldn't exclusively focus on that. Uh, there is an argument that uh, there are lots of special features of our Earth uh, which were required. Uh, some of them are listed here. Uh, there's been a book called Rare Earth which has given a list of these things. Uh, I tend to feel that that may be being too proscriptive, as it were, because uh, it's not clear these are prerequisites for life, although we have clearly evolved in symbiosis with our environment. But to say that uh, life can only exist when all these conditions are fulfilled uh, is rather misguided, perhaps like saying, is it amazing that our legs are just long enough to reach the ground? It's not amazing at all. And so we've evolved to fit in with this environment, but that doesn't mean that life could not evolve uh, in other environments. So I think we should be entirely open-minded about where we look and less parochial. Indeed, we realise that life is found under fairly extreme conditions on Earth, in hot springs and deep underground. And, of course, science fiction writers have other ideas. Balloon-like creatures floating in the dense atmospheres of Jupiter-like planets, swarms of intelligent insects, nanoscale robots and all kinds of things. And incidentally, about science fiction, I tell my students it's better to read first-rate science fiction, like Arthur C. Clarke, than second-rate science. Uh, <laughs> second-rate science uh, may not be true either, and is far less entertaining. <laughs> and uh, uh, to follow up Stuart Brandt, I would put in a plug for uh, the classic science fiction writer Olaf Stapleton, who wrote not only Star Maker, but a book called Last and First Men. These were two classics, and actually Last and First Men was one of the books that inspired Arthur C. Clarke when he was a child. Well, even if simple life is common and exists on many planets around other stars, it's of course a separate question whether it is likely to evolve into anything we might recognise as intelligent or complex. That's a separate question. Of course, some people already know, those who've uh, seen UFOs or been abducted. And in the UK, where I have the title of Astronomer Royal, I get quite a lot of letters from these people. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I tell them, isn't it a pity that uh, uh, these um, aliens um, came here and uh, all they did was despoiled a few cornfields, making corn circles, met a few well-known cr cranks and went away again? Um, and I tend to get these people to write to each other rather than to write to me. <laughs> but uh, perhaps uh, someday we will have real evidence. Uh, uh, perhaps one day the SETI searches, again being spearheaded uh, near here, will succeed. I think it's very, very important that these are being done. Because even if the signal that is detected is very boring, a list of prime numbers or the digits of pi, it would carry the momentous message that concepts of logic and physics weren't limited to the hard way in human skulls. It wouldn't prove there was consciousness out there, but it would prove that there was some kind of intelligence, either organic or some sort of computer. Now, if there is anything out there which is sending such signals, would we have a common culture with them? Well, we would not just mathematics, but even if these aliens live on planet Zog and have seven tentacles, they'd be made of the same kind of atoms as we are. They'd gaze out, if they had eyes, at the same cosmos as us. They'd trace their origins back to the same Big Bang. So we would have a lot in common. But of course, as you know, uh, even if they are uh, around a near 
by star. Signals would take many years to reach us. So we would have plenty of time to compose a measured response if we wished, uh, but uh, no scope for snappy repartee, as it were. (laughs) On the other hand, perhaps these searches will fail. Earth's intricate biosphere may be unique, and that may be disappointing, but it would have its upside because it would entitle us to be less cosmically modest because our tiny planet could then be the most important place in the galaxy. Perhaps even a seed from which life could spread through the entire galaxy eventually. But it's an old saying that absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And, of course, even if the SETI searches reveal nothing, there could be intelligences out there that are leading contemplative lives and not trying to communicate. Or there could be some that we couldn't recognise because they're so different from anything we can conceive. There might even be such things in our solar system. And, of course, if there are aliens out there, some of them may have insights which are more advanced than anything we can pose. They may have intelligences far ahead of ours. Just as quantum theory would flummox a chimpanzee, so there may be aspects of reality that humans will never grasp, but which would be grasped by our remote descendants and may be grasped already by aliens if they are out there. Well, so much for possible alien life around stars in our galaxy. Uh, let's now enlarge our horizons further. And I'm going to describe briefly the large-scale structure of our universe. If you could get two million light-years away from the Earth and look back, we'd see something like this. This picture, of course, as you know, is Andromeda, the nearest big galaxy to ours. It's a spinning disk viewed obliquely where about 100 billion stars are orbiting around a central hub in the middle of which lurks a big black hole. And this is um, a typical galaxy like ours. And our sun, uh, if we could look at our galaxy from great distance, would be a fairly ordinary star located out towards the edge, orbiting the central hub once every 200 million years, long even by long now standards. Well, here's another uh, galaxy, uh, Whirlpool. Now, astronomers actually understand a lot about galaxies. You might ask, how can they do this? Because they can't do any experiments on galaxies. They can just look at them. And, uh, uh, and it might be hard to believe that we can be confident that we understand what they're made of and how they form. But we can do experiments in our computer. Uh, we can't crash together particles like a particle physicist can in the Large Hadron Collider, uh, but we can crash galaxies together in our computers. And here's the results of one such calculation, two galaxies crashing together. What's happening is that the gravity of each star in one acts on the others, and they pull out these sort of tidal plumes. And when these galaxies have settled down, they will have merged into one single big amorphous bloated galaxy. Now, we can then look up in the sky and we see things like that. And it's fairly clear uh, that uh, what's happened here is rather like in that movie, two galaxies have got dangerously close and each has pulled out a tidal plume on the other. 
And by doing calculations with different assumptions about the masses, the dark matter, etc., we can firm up a picture of galaxies by comparing the outcome of those calculations with things we see in the sky. So that's why there is quite a substantial basis for our understanding of galaxies. And, of course, there are huge numbers available for study. Uh, this is uh, a picture of the galaxies within uh, about uh, uh, um, a few hundred million light years of ours. They're grouped together in clusters. One thing we know about galaxies is that they're moving away from us. I mean, we've known this ever since the work of Edwin Hubble. He is a heavy smoker, as you can see. And he, he discovered uh, that uh, um, distant galaxies are moving away from us, and the further they are from us, the faster they're moving, indicated by the longer arrows further away. Now, this doesn't imply we're in a central position. The best way to envisage the expanding universe is to think of a lattice like this. Supposing that you sit on one of the vertices and all the rods lengthen, then the other vertices will move away from you with a speed depending on the number of intervening links. The whole network will expand. Now, that's a good picture for the expanding universe if you imagine galaxies, or at least clusters of galaxies, joined together by rods, and all the rods lengthen in the same proportion. And the get galaxies get further away. There's no preferred central position. But there's one feature which isn't borne out by this picture and is better done by this other Escher picture, angels and devils. Because when you look a very long way away at a galaxy, you see it as it was a long time ago, because the light's taken a long time. And so, if the universe is expanding, you see distant galaxies at a time when they were closer together, when the rods were shorter, as it were. So what we actually see, if we look back along our past light cone, is something better resembling this picture here, where as you look further out towards your horizon, you see things more closely packed together. And we can see very far back. This picture shows a patch of sky only a few arc minutes across. It would take more than 100 patches like this to cover the full moon in the sky. With the smallest telescope, this would be a blank bit of sky. But with the Hubble or the biggest ground-based telescope, you see something like this. And each of these smudges is a galaxy, many of them fully the equal of our galaxy or Andromeda, looking so small and faint because of the huge distance. And many of these are so far away that their light set out 10 or 11 billion years ago, long before our Earth formed. And, in fact, uh, these galaxies look different from nearby galaxies because they contain more unprocessed gas that hasn't yet turned into stars and a lower proportion of elements like carbon and oxygen which you can look for spectroscopically. That's because 10 billion years ago, there hadn't been enough time to process much material through stars uh, to build up uh, the heavy elements. And therefore, uh, even though there might on Andromeda be uh, alien life, there may be astronomers on Andromeda looking back at us with bigger telescopes than ours, but you can say for sure that there aren't such astronomers on these very distant galaxies, because at the time when the light from these galaxies set out, there would not have been enough carbon, oxygen, and uh, phosphorus uh, to make a planet 
So there'd be no planets and therefore scant chance of life. Well, when we look at these distant galaxies, we're looking back to when the universe was about a tenth of its present age and about five or more times more compressed. But what about still earlier times? I don't have time to go through all the arguments, but again, as you probably know, uh, there is important evidence we've had for more than 40 years, which is that intergalactic space isn't completely cold. It's warmed to about three degrees above absolute zero by very weak microwaves. And these microwaves, if you measure their spectrum at different frequencies, have an almost exact so-called black body spectrum, indicating this is radiation that was once in equilibrium. And so this radiation filling all of space is a relic of when the entire universe was squeezed hot and dense, hotter and denser than the centre of the sun. And as the universe expanded, this radiation cooled, the wavelength stretched, but it's still around, it got nowhere else to go, and it's this weak background radiation. And we have this evidence and others which give us confidence in extrapolating back to the time when the universe was a few seconds old. Astronomers are often accused of being often in error but never in doubt, so you may say how confident can we be about this, but actually the evidence for the universe at one second is, in my view, as compelling as anything a geologist could tell you about the early history of the Earth. We've got uh, various fossils which can be measured very exactly. And so we do have this time chart for the evolution of the universe, and back to uh, one second, or at least a modest fraction of a second, is fairly well understood. But right back still earlier on, uh, it's uh, uh, rather mysterious. What we know is that at one second, everything was in this very hot, dense gas. Now, when you are told that the early universe was uh, uh, very hot and dense and amorphous and structureless, uh, there's a tendency to be rather puzzled about how, from something like that, can our present complex and structured cosmos have arisen? Because most people have heard of a so-called second law of thermodynamics, which says that structure tends to wash out. Structure tends to uh, uh, be eliminated rather than form, whereas our present universe is clearly far more structured than the hypothetical early stage, which was almost smooth. How can we reconcile this emergence of structure uh, with this law of thermodynamics? Well, the answer is a crucial role is played by gravity. Gravity enhances density contrasts as the universe expands. A region slightly denser than average would lag behind as the universe expands because of the extra gravity and eventually condense out. And I'm going to show you a movie which shows a volume of the universe uh, starting at the beginning and ending up now uh, where the expansion is subtracted out. So it's a patch big enough to make several hundred galaxies. It looks the same uh, size all the way. And on the bottom left, you see the time measured in giga years, billions of years. And you see that it started off amorphous, but density contrasts grow because gravity is enhancing them. And eventually, after 30.7 million years, we get something which actually is rather like the structures in our universe. And we have put in to the initial conditions here fluctuations which are known to exist in the background radiation. And models of this kind, which are shown 
16 powers of 10 fast in real time, of course, uh, they show uh, that uh, galaxies can have emerged from an amorphous early universe. And, of course, each of these galaxies is then an arena within which stars, planets, and perhaps life can emerge. We'd like to understand in fuller detail how, from these amorphous beginnings, the cosmos evolved to its present complexities with uh, life and planets. And there have to be quite a few requirements in order for this to happen. And uh, uh, let me give a list of them first. You've got to have particles at the beginning, protons and neutrons. You've then got to have stars and planets. And then we've got to have the synthesis of the periodic table in stars. And then planets forming around later generation stars. And then, of course, on at least one planet around at least one star, life has to form and undergo Darwinian evolution. And that evolution has led on at least one planet two creatures able to ponder the wonder and mystery of their origins. Well, what are the key prerequisites in the universe in order that all these things can happen? I'm going to give you a list. The first thing is that we need to have gravity. If there wasn't any gravity, then structures wouldn't condense out as the universe expands. Stars wouldn't pull themselves together. But gravity is a very weak force. Uh, gravity is negligible between individual atoms. It's negligible where you have, uh, say, a, a sugar cube or something like that. It's negligible for an asteroid. When you get something as big as a planet, it makes it round, and when it's bigger, it crushes it to make a star. Uh, so this um, picture here uh, shows the um, uh, um, various structures, and it's because gravity is so weak that stars are so big compared to atoms. So gravity is crucial, but we also need departures from thermodynamic equilibrium. If the universe expanded but then collapsed almost straight away, uh, then nothing complicated could ever happen. We need matter-antimatter asymmetry. We need more matter than antimatter, because if there were equal amounts, then as the universe expanded and cooled, it would all annihilate, and there would be lots of radiation, but no atoms left behind. We need a non-trivial chemistry. We need to have a periodic table. And that requires some other tuning between the nuclear force that holds uh, the nuclei together and the electric forces that disrupt them. We also need stars to form. Probably second-generation stars, because one star makes heavy elements, but then it's got to make second-generation stars in order to have planets. And also, the expansion rate must be tuned, because if the universe were expanding too slowly, it would collapse too soon. If it expanded too fast, then gravity wouldn't be able to combat the kinetic energy and um, galaxies wouldn't form. So uh, all those things are required, and there must be some fluctuations in the early universe in order for the um, uh, in, in order for there to be something to feed on the density contrast. A completely smooth universe would stay smooth forever. Now, what cosmologists are trying to do is to understand and quantify these things um, and understand how they came about. These numbers, uh, which um, all um, uh, are basic numbers of physics, the strength of the forces, etc., they must have been imprinted at some very early stage in the universe. We don't know quite how early, but I think uh, 
um, very early indeed in most people's pictures. I like to show this picture. Uh, this shows the very early universe, and this is actual size. <laughs> this is the size of the universe when it's a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old, and this is a time when it's thought that many of these key features were imprinted in it. And the physics at that early stage is very uncertain. Uh, we can extrapolate back uh, quite a long way, but when we get back to that tiny, tiny fraction of a second where all these important numbers were imprinted, we still don't have any firm foothold because the physics is far beyond anything we can directly uh, simulate in the lab or in an accelerator. At this point, I'd like to insert a health warning, a hazard, because I want to briefly mention some speculative issues. First, how big is our universe? Well, we can see this huge range of galaxies out to a distance of uh, uh, 10 or 12 billion light years. There's sort of a horizon around us, but there's no reason to think that's all there is. Just like if you're in the middle of an ocean, you climb the mast of your ship and you see a horizon around you, but you don't necessarily think the ocean finishes just, just beyond your horizon. And the same is probably true in the, in the universe. We can't be sure of what happens beyond the horizon, but the expectation is that there is far, far more to our universe. It goes on far further than we can actually see. One reason for that is that if we look as far as we can in that direction and in that direction, then conditions look the same to a precision of one part in 100,000. So if it's part of some finite structure, then that structure must be much bigger than the scale we can actually see. But some theories suggest that it goes on even further than that, maybe even so far that all combinatorial options are played out. So there would be uh, um, somewhere else uh, another lecture room with similar people in uh, listening to a lecture. But the distance you have to go to find that replica is hugely greater. It's 10 to the power, 10 to the 200, a huge number. So there's no uh, possibility of, uh, of seeing that replica because uh, it would be far, far beyond the horizon. And moreover, even this isn't all, because what I'm talking about now is the aftermath of our Big Bang. But some theories suspect that there could be other quite separate regions of space-time. One idea is what's called brain worlds, the idea that there could be separate three-dimensional cosmoses embedded in some common four-dimensional substratum. To give an illustration, supposing that you have a whole lot of ants on a sheet of paper, that's their two-dimensional universe, they might be unaware of another uh, population of ants on a parallel sheet of paper. So likewise, there could be another universe just that far away from ours. But if that distance is measured in a fourth spatial dimension and we're imprisoned in our three, we wouldn't know about it. That's one possibility, which some people talk about with a straight face. <laughs> and... Um, this is, a, uh, this is a, a cartoon of an idea which is taken much more seriously called eternal inflation. Uh, we are in some region, shown bottom right, but that is just one bubble, as it were, uh, in some infinite hierarchy. So uh, these ideas um, are taken quite seriously, and if there are many Big Bangs, this raises another important question, which is, are the laws of physics the same in all of them? 
They may be, but it could be that some of the laws of physics depend on how the Big Bang cooled down, and it's different in different ones. And that's very important for the apparent fine-tuning which seems to have been required in order for our universe to exist. And uh, th this is a sort of decision tree that we hope eventually to be able to settle. How many Big Bangs are there? One or many? If there are many, are they all the same in the physical laws governing them, or are, are some of them different? Um, and uh, if uh, we have the, the right-hand uh, thing, then we can say that our universe is governed by what we think are universal laws, but are really, as it were, uh, bylaws in our cosmic patch uh, and could be different elsewhere. And we are in a universe that's governed by laws that allow complexity, whereas there could be sterile or stillborn universes uh, uh, which are disconnected from ours. So remember, the, uh, the hazard warning sign is still on. This is still very speculative. If I needed a logo for my research group, I'd choose this, an Ouroboros. The image depicts the interconnectedness of the microworld on the left and the cosmos on the right, the inner space of atoms and the outer space of the universe. There are links between small and large, left and right. And our everyday world of life and mountains is in the middle. It's determined by atoms and chemistry. And there are other links between left and right on this diagram. We are determined by atom and chemistry, but there's a link halfway up because stars are fueled by the nuclei within those atoms. And also, though I've had no time to describe it, galaxies are held together by dark matter, which is believed to be some particles even smaller than atomic nuclei. So the links between left and right. The left is the domain of the quantum, and on the right-hand side, Einstein's theory of gravity holds sway. General relativity and quantum theory are the two great pillars of 20th century physics, but they haven't yet been meshed together in a single unified theory. In most contexts, this doesn't really impede scientific progress. That's because the domains of relevance of those two theories don't overlap. A chemist doesn't need to worry about the gravitational pull between the different atoms in a molecule, Conversely, an astronomer doesn't need to worry about the quantum fuzziness in the orbit of a planet, because the planet is so, so big. But if we think of the very beginning of the universe, everything was squeezed so dense that we have to worry about both these theories. Quantum fluctuations could then shake the entire universe when it was compressed. And so to understand the very beginning, to understand what banged and why it banged, were there many big bangs or one, we will have to understand the synthesis symbolized, as it were, gastronomically at the top here, uh, between the very small and the very large. But before leaving this picture, there's a third frontier at the bottom. Neither the very large nor the very small, but the very complex. And the most complicated things are we ourselves. We're actually midway on a log scale between atoms and stars. They're big compared to atoms because we've got layer upon layer of structure, but we're small compared to stars. We're not so big that we get crushed by gravity. And incidentally, uh, we are fairly accurate in the middle. The geometric mean of the mass of a proton and the mass of the sun is 50 kilograms, with a factor of two of the mass of most people here. And we are midway between atoms and stars, and to understand ourselves, we have to understand the atoms we're made of but we also have to understand the stars that made those atoms. 
And the problem of this third frontier is complexity. Even an insect, with its layer upon layer of complexity, is harder to understand than a star, where intense heat and compression by gravity preclude complex chemistry. Uh, this picture, incidentally, is uh, the famous drawing of a flea by Robert Hooke, uh, who uh, uh, was one of the first um, people to use a microscope, and he published uh, a book, and uh, he was actually uh, a great enemy of Newton, Newton's least favourite fellow of the Royal Society, uh, but he was not only a great scientist but a great draftsman, and he produced this wonderful book. Of, uh, and you can imagine the uh, uh, fascination when the public saw these pictures for the very first time. But even a flea is much more complicated than a star. <clears throat> Finally, I want to draw back from the cosmos, from what even may be a vast array of cosmoses, and zoom back closer to the here and now, to our planet orbiting a typical star in our galaxy. I want to emphasize first that even if there isn't any life out there, it doesn't mean that life is forever a trivial afterthought in the cosmos. That's because of the vast time that lies ahead when life can spread from the Earth far away. The stupendous time spans of the evolutionary past are now part of common culture. Maybe not in Kansas and a few places like that, but in most places uh, this is a common culture that we have emerged over about four billion years from simple beginnings. But even people who are familiar with this tend all too often to somehow think that we are the culmination of the process. And no astronomer could honestly believe that. The reason for that is that the time lying ahead is even longer. This is a time-lapse picture uh, showing the sun's origin from an interstellar cloud, its evolution, and eventually it'll become a red giant. It's less than halfway through its life. And it's got six billion years before the fuel runs out and then flares up, engulfing the inner planets. So the future of our sun is longer than its past. And the expanding universe will continue far longer, perhaps forever. To quote Woody Allen, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. <laughs> so any creatures who witness the sun's demise six billion years from now, they won't be humans. They'll be as different from us as we are from a bug. There's been as much time for evolution between now and then as there has been over the past history of the Earth. And moreover, as I said earlier, evolution in future is going to be far faster than Darwinian selection. So post-human evolution here on Earth and beyond could be as prolonged as the Darwinian evolution that's led to us and even more wonderful. And Darwin himself recognises this. He realised that not one living species would exist forever and there would be new species in future. So we're maybe barely at the halfway stage of evolutionary development. Finally, we're all familiar with these iconic pictures of our planet from space. Earth's delicate biosphere contrasting with the sterile moonscape where the astronauts left their footprints. And we've had these images, of course, for 40 years. An environmental icon. Now suppose 
that some aliens have been watching our planet, viewing it like that, not just for 40 years, but for its entire four and a half billion year history. What would they have seen? Well, over nearly all that immense time, Earth's appearance would have changed very gradually. Continents drifted, the ice cover waxed and waned, successive species emerged, evolved and became extinct. But in just a tiny sliver of the Earth's history, the last one millionth part, just a few thousand years, the aliens would have seen the patterns of vegetation altering much faster than before. This signaled the start of agriculture, and the pace of change accelerated as human populations rose. And then there are other changes, even more abrupt. Within 50 years, little more than one hundredth of a millionth of the Earth's age, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere began to rise anomalously fast. The planet became an intense emitter of radio waves, a total output from TV, cell phones and radar transmissions. And something else unprecedented happened. Small projectiles launched from the planet's surface escaped the biosphere completely. Some were propelled into orbit, some went to the moon, some beyond to the planets. Well, if they understood astrophysics, the aliens could confidently predict that the biosphere would face doom in a few billion years when the sun flares up and dies. But could they have predicted this unprecedented runaway fever less than halfway through the Earth's life? Even in this concertina timeline, extending billions of years into the future as well as into the past, this century therefore may be a defining moment. It's the first in our planet's history where one species, ours, has Earth's future in its hands. And it'll be us who determine what happens in the future. Will life eventually uh, stabilise? Will there be some spasm and disaster? Or will some of the planets, sorry, some of the um, projectiles launched from the Earth spawn new oases of life elsewhere? So those decisions depend on us this century. And so we are the stewards of this planet at a specially crucial era. And I think that's a message for all of us, whether we are astronomers or not. Thank you very much. I like the way you put long now into uh, such a minuscule <laughs> short now. Uh, if I got an amplifier on? Yeah. Could we have the lights on? Because I haven't. And, yeah, could we see the... Yeah. I want to check you're still here. This, yeah. Mar- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't see Martin you Martin has been speaking into yeah. brightness. And yeah, yeah. needs to... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Look, people. This is what discovering life in the universe is going to be like. <laughs> right. It's been dark, and then the, you know, it turns out yeah. there's people out there laughing all right. this time. <laughs> you end on a note of we're stewards of the planet. Mm-hmm. And you also had a, a kind of a, a, a down view on, well, at least a, the option that SETI won't find anything. 
either right. because it's not detectable or because it's right. not there. Yes, yes, yes. And if it's not there, and we're the only life, and we're also the stewards of it now, yes. uh, how cosmic is that responsibility? Well, I think it is a cosmic responsibility because uh, if life or intelligent life is rare, uh, and there are arguments it may well be, uh, then it could be unique to the Earth within the galaxy. Um, and therefore, the Earth, though tiny, is a specially precious place. But moreover, as I briefly mentioned, uh, if that's the case, it doesn't mean that life is forever a trivial afterthought in the cosmos. That's because it would be possible uh, in the time lying ahead for post-human life, either organic or silicon-based, to spread right through the galaxy. There's plenty of time for that to happen. That could happen in far less than uh, a billion years. And so uh, the, the life, even if now limited to the Earth, could be an important feature of the galaxy in the far future. So uh, the stakes are, in a sense, very high in that uh, if we were to snuff out life now, which I think is very unlikely, uh, then uh, we'd destroy uh, not just ourselves, but that great potentiality. And so to give a slightly frivolous analogy, supposing that uh, um, you clobbered the first fish that crawled onto dry land, it might have been a prepossessing looking creature, but you would have destroyed the potentiality of land-based life. Similarly, uh, whatever we think of ourselves, however misanthropic we are, then we should realise that perhaps we are not uh, the combination. Well, you've, you wrote a book, the most recent book, I think, is called Our Final Hour. And it's a, a kind of a, you know, mm-hmm. will we get out of the century alive? Uh, and it, 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 you seem to feel the question right. is quite open. I can't tell if you're a pessimist or a person who's trying to warn people uh, to be careful. Yes. Uh, well, the book which I wrote, I entitled it Our Final Century, question mark. My English publishers left out the question mark. And then the American publishers oh, God. retitled it Our Final Hour, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, which um, uh, I thought was a rather silly title, but I guess it's because Americans like instant gratification um, and, and the reverse. Um, but uh, the theme of the book was indeed that this century is indeed a especially crucial one because it is the first when one species, ours, does have the future of the planet in its hands. And I had two themes, really. One is the familiar one that uh, we are collectively um, putting more pressure on uh, resources and environment because there are more of us. There'll be nine billion by mid-century and we're each more demanding of energy and resources. So that's uh, something we need to contend with and climate change, etc. But also, uh, we are individually more empowered by technology and there's also a greater threat from uh, small uh, um, individuals who want to be disruptive because they will have more power in the future than now. But for both those reasons, I did think that there was a 50% chance of something as bad as a nuclear war by the end of a century. I don't think we wipe ourselves out, but there could be a severe setback uh, due to uh, misuse of natural resources or uh, misuse of of technology. Um, So uh, that was really my concern. Um, But if you ask, am I an optimist? I think I'm a technological optimist but a political pessimist, in that I think it's clear that we will have, indeed we now do have, uh, available the knowledge to uh, uh, make a world with far less poverty and uh, sharing the benefits of globalisation, but we're not doing that. Um, And uh, as we develop our new technology, uh, then clearly the potentialities are greater, but also the risks are greater, and uh, that is my concern.
That's well, a long answer. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Question from Peter Schwartz. Uh, is the long-term long fate of humankind dependent upon whether we can exceed the speed of light and escape our solar system, or are we stuck with nine useless planets? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I think it's true that uh, um, if you look at the other planets, I mean, there's, a, uh, uh, there's none that would be habitable um, in any comfort. Uh, terraforming of Mars in the long term is a possibility. Uh, so I don't think that uh, space uh, living within our solar system is going to be uh, attractive to more than a few intrepid pioneers. Um, if we look very far ahead, uh, then, of course, uh, um, uh, the first pioneers could use all the techniques of genetic modification to adapt to their alien environment, and that will be the start of the post-human era. But also, um, uh, miniaturized robots uh, could, of course, uh, um, spread far more rapidly than anything organic, and even uh, to other stars. It would take a long time, but, of course, uh, if the human life is irrelevant, then then that could happen. And, of course, the other idea, again, from science fiction, is to, uh, to send information at the speed of light. Um, but, of course, we do have to go more than the speed of light if we want to uh, uh, go to other parts of the galaxy in a traditional human lifetime. Do you see any hope for faster than light? Uh, I don't. I mean, there, is, uh, there are hypothetical time machines... Um, but the uh, only one that's been worked out involves creating a black hole weighing as much as uh, 10,000 suns. Uh, and that seems a pretty tall technological order. Uh, <laughs> and also, uh, if we could make a time machine, um, it would uh, allow us to go very fast into the future um, and, in effect, to see the speed of light, but it won't allow us to go back into the past. Uh, we can't... Uh, go back to the past. We don't expect, therefore, to have uh, tourists from the future invading us. Question from Jim Kutz. Could you uh, comment on whether the Milky Way, our galaxy, has been in a collision? Um, well, it's, it's not been in a major collision because if, if it had collided with uh, a big galaxy after its disk formed, then the disk would not survive. The disk would be Disturbed, and it would end up as a sort of amorphous elliptical galaxy. So there's been no big collision in the last uh, um, six or seven billion years. But our galaxy did grow by the agglomeration of smaller members, and there are small galaxies um, in orbit around it and falling into it. In fact, there's the Magellanic Cloud, which are two small galaxies um, which are orbiting at a distance of about uh, 150,000 light years and they will eventually uh, merge with our galaxy. So our galaxy is accreting smaller neighbours, but we can say it hasn't had a big crash like the one in that movie, uh, not in the last uh, seven billion years, certainly not in the lifetime of the sun, because that would not allow there to be a disk. And I presume there's no other large galaxy on the collision course that we know of? Or? Well, there is actually, there's Andromeda, um, and Andromeda is coming towards us, and uh, it is quite likely that Andromeda will crash into our galaxy in about four or five billion years. Um, and uh, uh, we can't be quite sure because we... we so we the, sun, the sun will still be around for that, and if life is still around, it will be in the thick of that. So. Uh, it will, but it won't affect things very much because uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the gas in the two galaxies will shock and will emerge and will heat up. But uh, uh, the stars are so widely spread that the chance of two stars colliding 
is very small. So what happens is the, the sort of phases of the orbits of the stars will mix up, but there won't be stellar collisions. So uh, the, the sun and the planets will be unaffected by such collisions. Does anything happen quickly in the course of something like that? I mean, they not only don't hit, it sounds like it's sort of a slow-motion ballet. It, it is. It's happening on a time scale of 100 million years or so. Right. Um, the only rapid things that happen uh, in uh, astronomy are... Um, when stars are evolved and exploding, and then, of course, we get uh, explosions, we get uh, phenomena down to a fraction of a second. I mean, there's a, the neutron stars spinning around at uh, 700 revs per second, sending out uh, flashes every revolution. Um, and uh, so small things like that can move, can change very fast, but uh, something as big as a galaxy uh, can't change in a human lifetime. Another astronomical question from one of the remote listeners. Um, who's listening in on their computer, Paul Backlace. What is the theoretical limit of resolving power for telescopes, assuming no limit to the cost or size? Um, if you could have the biggest yes. of all possible scopes, what would you yes. uh, uh, shoot for? Well, I think in, uh, in, in visible light, if you do it in space, uh, then uh, um, there's no limit. You would certainly get down to much better than a microsecond. Of course, it's the Earth's atmosphere that stops that. Uh, so in, in the uh, optical and the X-rays, then uh, uh, you can get a, a, a micro-arc second, even a nano-arc second. Um, in the radio, uh, there is a limit because uh, uh, interstellar gas produces a kind of twinkling at radio frequencies, rather like the twinkling which the atmosphere produces in visible light. So for radio telescopes, there is a limit, uh, although it still allows less than a milli-arc second. But in the optical... Uh, there's no limit anywhere near being achieved in the foreseeable future. And so uh, the problem of um, uh, detecting planets around other stars uh, is that you do need a very big telescope to get the resolution, and also you need sensitivity because you have to detect the very faint object, uh, the planet, uh, very close in the sky to a very bright object, the star. Uh, another astronomical question from another remote listener, Elliot Hoffman. Um, what cosmic surprises would you hope and expect to encounter in the next 25 years or so that would immediately change human consciousness about ourselves, the natural world, and the cosmos? And I suppose you can run that question backwards. What kind of surprises have we had like that in the past? Yes. I mean, because by definition, I can't tell you what surprises will be in the next 25 years. Um, well, give us a history of the ones that blew our minds before. Yes. Well, I mean, I think... Uh, um, the detection of uh, neutron stars. This is 40 years ago. The fact, you know, if you told people um, that there would be stars uh, so small that they weigh more than the, the uh, sun and can spin at nearly a thousand revs per second, mm -hmm. that's pretty mind blowing. And black holes uh, were a theoretical uh, construct, but we now uh, uh, are certain that they exist in the sense of most galaxies um, and uh, smaller ones more widespread. Um, so those are two big surprises. Um, we uh, have learnt to considerable surprise that uh, our universe uh, is speeding up in its expansion, not slowing down, which means that as well as the gravity, which is um, uh, uh, causing um, the expansion to slow down because everything exerts a gravitational pull and everything else, there's some other very weak and diffuse force which is pushing everything away from everything else. And uh, we don't know what this force is. It implies that even empty space somehow exerts a force which opposes gravity. And that's a really big surprise which uh, uh, has come about in the last 10 years. And I think it's very important that 
the reason astronomy has advanced so fast um, is that uh, technology has advanced. Technology, sensitive detectors on the ground and in space, and, of course, computer power to handle the data and do simulations. And, of course, uh, the field of planets around stars. I mean, the first planet around a normal star was found by uh, Meyer in Geneva only 15 years ago. And uh, now this is a major field of astronomy, a really fascinating one. And so that's an example of how an entire new field can develop within a decade. So it sounds like you're saying if the technology is continuing to get better at a steady pace or an accelerating pace, then it will turn up surprises at this Well, I think it will. And, uh, and of course, the timescale for constructing big telescopes is uh, um, a decade or so. I mean, longer if funding is slow. And we can predict that uh, within 20 years there will be, uh, or, there, or there certainly could be if funding were available, uh, these instruments that could detect Earth-like planets. I mean, not indirectly by their shadows, but actually uh, um, pin, pinpoint them and, uh, and study the light from them. So that's an example where we can predict with some confidence what we will be able to do 20 years from now and we can't do. But, of course, when we do have those instruments, then as well as doing uh, what we can predict them to, they will perhaps uh, um, disclose some completely unsuspected features. That's been the history of most instruments in the past. They've... Uh, in most cases, done what they were supposed to do, but they have also made un entirely unexpected discoveries. And I think that's the wonderful thing about uh, science, especially astronomy. As the frontiers advance, um, the um, uh, uh, periphery gets longer, as it were, and new more new problems can be attacked. And uh, uh, if I think of cosmology, uh, when I was a student, there was big debate about was there a big bang, mm. how old was the universe, etc. And all those debates have been settled. And the questions we're now debating about the first tiny fraction of a second of a universe and what the dark matter is made of, etc., couldn't have been posed back then. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's the uh, signature of a really vibrant and rapidly advancing science. There's a question, um, a good long now question from Felicity Hammer. Um, the Royal Society, which you're the head, uh, just recently celebrated his 350th mm -hmm. yes. uh, anniversary. And, and uh, the question is, uh, would you speak to the issue of the characteristics and attributes of a long-term institution? What does it take? <laughs> yes, yes, the Long Now Foundation, we're very well, interested in this. Well, start early. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, well, I mean, it, it is true that the Royal Society started in 1660 uh, when... Uh, um, a group of uh, uh, amateur gentlemen scientists gathered to hear a lecture by Christopher Wren, famous now as an architect, but he was then professor of astronomy hmm. at Oxford, and he gave a lecture on astronomy, and they decided to form a society, and that society um, got a royal charter, um, and in, 19, in the 1660s, they met regularly to have uh, experiments done for them. They were, they were a variety, they... Um, uh, dissected weird animals, they uh, started explosions, and they heard travellers' tales, um, and they did some rather gruesome experiments. They did blood transfusions um, between dogs, and even from a dog to a man, and the man survived. Uh, and, uh, and so, of course, health and safety doesn't allow us to uh, do these experiments today. Uh, the society's meetings have changed their character. But I think... <laughs> yeah. um, but... Um, one thing that happened very early in the Royal Society was the founding of the first scientific journal, 
Mm. Because uh, uh, scientists, of course, throughout Europe, uh, they corresponded with each other. Um, but uh, uh, then the first journal was uh, set up, um, and uh, people like Huygens in Holland uh, published their papers uh, in this one journal, and that was the way information was uh, disseminated. Um, and uh, uh, that's, of course, been the model for the way science is done. I think many of us feel that perhaps the scientific journal is getting a bit obsolete in the, uh, in the age of the web, but uh, it's been the dominant means of disseminating science and uh, um, you know, uh, peer-reviewing it to uh, accredit what is to be taken seriously. Uh, so that's been something which the society has done. But the Royal Society now, like the National Academy of Sciences in this country, is involved very much in all the issues of policy that have a scientific dimension. I mean, uh, things like um, uh, environment, energy, climate, bioethics, etc., all areas where uh, science impacts on policy and where, frankly, there are too few politicians with adequate knowledge or understanding. These are all areas where academies have an important role. And often they work together Mm. because lots of these uh, uh, global problems are really global and they need to be tackled by uh, um, scientists from all over the world. And that's why we in the Royal Society do have a lot of contact, particularly with the American National Academy of Sciences, but with others, simply to try and raise on the agenda uh, these important issues, in particular uh, those of coping with the crises of the next half century. But it's interesting because science moves very quickly. The uh, political governments that you're being helpful to move pretty quickly. Um, and yet here, and there's you know, laboratories like the Cavendish, they've been around mm-hmm. for quite a while, yeah, yeah. doing very fast-moving science. How, how does this mix of fast-moving content and, and durability of institution, how does that blend? Well, it's, it's interesting. I think uh, um, any durable institution has to change. I mean, although uh, I mean, I'm in a university which is a celebrated 800th anniversary, but it was, not, it was not the same 800 years ago as it is now. It's, it's a work in progress even today, and that's true of any vibrant institution. Um, but uh, I think there is a, a certain uh, attraction and extra responsibility if you are part of an institution that has a history which uh, you can on the whole admire. It does make you feel that you do have uh, a special responsibility. Um, although the uh, hmm. uh, missions of any societies, just like a university, have to change over the decades. Robin Sloan has a question. Are there big questions of large-scale scientific projects that we, amateurs, non-specialists, can contribute to meaningfully? What skills should we learn? What gear should we buy or invent? <laughs> yes. um, There's large-scale science you've been talking about, and yes. many of the Royal Society perspectives on things are large-scale science. Yes. What role the amateurs have? Well, I think... Um, uh, of course, traditionally, amateurs have had a role in subjects like geology and natural history. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, uh, the, <clears throat> the advent of the web has uh, had a tremendous effect in that it uh, allows people to participate in science. To take an example, mm-hmm. uh, when a comet crashed into Jupiter about uh, 10 years ago, lots of people watched that in real time on the, on the Internet. Um, and, of course, uh, a SETI at home, is an example where there have been uh, literally millions of people involved. And uh, uh, based in the UK, there's a project called uh, Galaxy Zoo, which is uh, uh, asking people to uh, try and classify 
the uh, morphology of galaxies and to, mm -hmm. to, um, to, to help in the way that in the old days people have, would have studied uh, uh, rare species. So there are lots of cases where uh, the public can participate and uh, the internet makes it much, much easier uh, for them to, uh, uh, to participate. And also, of course, uh, the uh, internet has really leveled the playing field between uh, major institutions in countries like this and people working uh, in small institutions in, say, India or Africa. Because uh, uh, in the old days, um, uh, if you were in India or Africa, then you got scientific journals, either not at all or months late. Uh, whereas now, uh, you get these journals, um, well, you, you get the information on the web instantly. I'll give you an example of this. Let me give uh, um, two cases in, uh, involving India. A hundred years ago, uh, there was an Indian uh, clerk called Ramanujan who um, uh, uh, sent letters to uh, a Cambridge professor, G.H. Hardy. Uh, and uh, these were all kinds of mathematical formulae. And G.H. Uh, Hardy, uh, fortunately, didn't dismiss this as some uh, greening scribbler, but realised that the uh, uh, writer of this uh, uh, material had really preternatural insight into mathematics and he uh, invited Ramanujan to uh, come and work in Cambridge. This is a very famous romantic story. Uh, but the contrast I wanted to allude to is uh, that in, 19, in 2002 uh, a professor and two students at Kampur in India made a discovery in mathematics. It was a, uh, a new way of factorising prime numbers which is important for code theory. And they put that on the internet and within one day, 20,000 people had downloaded it, and there had been seminars convened in institutions in many countries to discuss this result. So instant recognition uh, for Indian students now via the internet, as contrasted with uh, the good luck which prevented Ramanujan living in obscurity. So that's an example of how uh, the participation in science has been hugely widened by, by the internet. Well, thanks to the internet, we had GenBank that came along, and, and the yep. peculiarity that people were putting up new genomic data in half-baked mode immediately, as you suggest, mm -hmm. and then yes. it got sort of baked in public by various yes. people yes. confirming or denying yes. what yes. they were discovering yes. and so on. And suddenly science flipped from uh, where one became an, a specialist and sort of sequestered one's data and one's theories and, mm -hmm. and withdrew into oneself into a science of sharing, Yes. Uh, and it used to be that the more control you had over your material, the more you got promoted in science, and now it's flipped to the more you share your material, as long mm -hmm. as it's good, uh, the more you get promoted in yeah. science. So that's a flip. Yes. Then you're describing the rest of this engagement that more and more people can have. It sounds like we're moving into an era of a golden age of amateur science. It's like the 19th century, only instead of a few yes. gentlemen, it's bloody everybody. Well, it's, it's uh, uh, amateurs and... Uh, professionals and bloggers, etc. And, of course, uh, data sets are much, much larger now, not just in astronomy, but in genomics and mm -hmm. uh, climate science and all these things are huge data sets. Um, and uh, uh, more and more people now have the chance to uh, access and download them and analyse them. I mean, you need to have some uh, sophistication to analyse a large data set. Um, but I think it's very important that in subjects where uh, data is... Um, uh, gathered, there should be some protocol about uh, whether the discoverer has proprietorial rights or whether it should be made publicly available. I mean, in the case of the Hubble Space Telescope, for instance, the custom has been that uh, the observer has the data for a year 
and then it's in a public archive, and that archive is maintained in a way that anyone can use it. Um, there have been debates uh, about uh, uh, climate records, etc., mm. uh, which uh, haven't always been kept in a form that can be made available readily and understandable by people. But that's terribly important. Right. Uh, and it's important that uh, the archive should be accessible um, and uh, uh, maintained in a standard format um, because more and more people are going to want to check and it's important that they should. Now, as head of the Royal Society, uh, you've had to watch over not just your, your previous domains of science but bloody well everything for five years. Yeah, <laughs> and, yes, yes. And you and I were just at a gathering of 330 scientists at the SciFu camp mm -hmm. for a couple of days at, uh, at Google. As you scan across the sciences, what do you see, where do you see the action? What's going on? What, well, take it personally. What kind of excites you that you see going on outside your own field? Yes. Um, well, I mean, I think uh, um, the biggest trend is uh, um, the advance in, uh, in computer simulations because uh, um, I, I, sh I, I showed a simple computer simulation in my subject and uh, uh, um, the main change in my subject has been that uh, we can do realistic simulations of uh, stellar evolution, galaxy evolution, etc. And computer simulations are now invading more and more sciences. Um, uh, in fact, in chemistry, there are some things which were done experimentally but now can be done better by computer simulations. And so mm. I think that's a big trend because of the hugely rapid advance in uh, computer power to do simulations and uh, uh, process large amounts of data. And that cuts across all fields, I would say. Uh, but also, I think, the much greater openness of science to, uh, um, to people um, in, in, all, in all countries. Well, we had a question from David Clausen, basically raising the, a question which is often raised about computer modeling of reality is, mm -hmm. um, you know, the sort of the climate models said, that, well, the ice is going to melt in 40 years, and then it didn't, it melted in, uh, much sooner than that. Mm -hmm. And people said, well, why should we believe anything else about these models if it was wrong about that important matter? Our, I guess the question I have is, is say what we are what is really good about models, and you started on that, and then also what things to be wary about about models, and what is the trend? Are models likely to get significantly better for a long time? Is there a Moore's Law of modeling? Well, I think in a way there is, um, uh, because of uh, growth in the, the speed of, and power of computers. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, uh, there are some problems which are so complicated that uh, uh, no foreseeable models will be a very adequate representation of reality. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think of climate, uh, then uh, uh, the present climate models, of course, have two deficiencies. One is that they don't uh, deal with uh, water vapor and cloud cover uh, very well, and also they don't have spatial resolution. And what we want uh, to know is what the climate impacts will be on particular regions, um, and the models don't have that resolution. And it'll be a long time before they, before they do. Um, and uh, I think a similar story could be told in, in other fields that uh, uh, many phenomena are very, very complicated and uh, even with Moore's law it will be a long time before the computer models are reliable but they're, they're certainly an aid to, uh, aid to intuition if nothing else you know, When the map is the territory then it gets very interesting <laughs> indeed um, Isn't that a question in a sense that your first wonderful participation with Long now was to do one of the early uh, predictions for long bets 
It's number mm -hmm. nine in the list and yes. uh, is featured for that reason. And your prediction in 2002 was that by 2020, there will be an event of bioterror or bioerror that causes a million deaths. Mm -hmm. And we're now about halfway along in that. Yes. Um, the voting on it, there's 400, and 400 people that think that you're right and 450 people who think that won't happen. Mm -hmm. um, halfway along, what do you think? Yes. Well, obviously, I desperately hope that I'm wrong uh, in this case, but, uh, but my concern really was that uh, um, uh, biotechnology is developing very fast and there are greater risks of error or terror, uh, and also uh, um, because uh, populations are crowded in mega cities in the developing world, that is the place where uh, any epidemic, uh, mm. you know, a natural one, uh, could become catastrophic. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, if you think of natural epidemics like SARS, it was jolly lucky that it didn't get to a, a developing world city because it couldn't have been coped with so well if it did. Um, but uh, uh, I think. The, the risk is that there may be some, uh, some error or indeed some, uh, some genuine terror, which if it happened in an uh, area where it couldn't be coped with adequately, could really mm -hmm. be catastrophic. Yeah. Uh, in 2020, when we yeah. have a yeah. conversation again, and mm -hmm. uh, you've either won or uh, lost that prediction, um, suppose the event has not happened. Mm -hmm. um, would you then do a next 20-year thing, or would the uh, prediction that, well, in the next 20 years it'll happen, or is it your expectation that what we are doing is getting a, an ex a sort of a non-existence proof here? Um, well, I mean, I, I think this goes back to the theme of my book. Um, I, I think uh, there is a genuine worry uh, that uh, um, uh, a few individuals who want to cause uh, um, widespread devastation will be able to do it more easily with new technology than they could in the past. Um, and so there is, there is this risk. And uh, I think there's a genuine uh, tension between uh, security and privacy mm -hmm. uh, in that uh, uh, if you want to be sure that people aren't surreptitiously uh, misusing these dual-use technologies, then we do need to be fairly uh, um, intrusive. But I think the good news is that... Uh, um, only the older generation seems to care about privacy. If you look at what younger people put voluntarily on uh, Facebook and such like, uh, then it looks as though uh, everyone is uh, watching each other to the extent that uh, we can be uh, assured that it would be conspicuous if someone uh, uh, were being uh, too secretive. But I do worry about uh, uh, a few extremists like echo freaks who think the world would be better off without human beings, and we know there are some such mm -hmm. people. Uh, some people like that empowered by technology could do huge damage. Um, and uh, uh, people with the mindset of those who now design computer viruses may start doing the same with real viruses. So I think these are genuine uh, concerns. Um, and uh, uh, that's why uh, I, I do feel that it's going to be very hard uh, to uh, uh, maintain um, freedom and privacy uh, in a world where a few people can do far more damage than they ever could in the past. I detect a very guarded optimism here. <laughs> that you, you can see a lot of things that can go wrong. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, but great hope if they don't. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.